Hello, and welcome to the Sound of History podcast. You want to do that again where I'm not starting to say butts? <laughs> no, we're good. Oh. <laughs> this is a music history podcast where I am teaching Mika the whole story of American music history. I'm Nick. I'm Mika. You actually said I your like name. I like big butts and I cannot lie. A fat joke? No, it's a fat ass joke. It's not even a joke. Okay. Well, today, we have a bonus episode, which I know you love, that format. I forgot. <laughs> We're going to be talking about Woodstock. I'm going to tell you the Drugs. story of Woodstock. Drugs. But first, Mika is the host now. Mika is the host now. Um, I have the most beautiful manicure right now, and I'm really proud of it. And... I use Dipwell powder. It's really pretty and it's like clear and it has like silver sparkles in it and I feel like a princess or a bride. That's kind of the vibe. Or like same an ice thing. queen. Not the same thing. I don't know. They're just really nice. It's dip. I like Dipwell powders and then I like, uh oh, I don't know what the, I don't know what the liquids are, but that's important because I didn't really like the Dipwell liquids. I don't, uh-oh. <laughs> I don't have a, f I do have my phone. Hold for effect. Ha, ha, triple vitamin. Okay. You're not going to leave all that in there, right? We're going to lose so many people. <laughs> no, because you got to cut that down. You looking at your phone for a solid two minutes. Okay, so good. <laughs> no. Okay. Anyway, my nails are pretty and sparkly. And Joe Jonas. Your nails are Joe Jonas. No. But Joe Jonas would like my nails. Probably. I feel confident in that. I think I could be like, look, Joe, I really care about my nails. Look how pretty and sparkly they are. And he'd be like, great. <laughs> but he'd mean it. It's Mr. Jonas to you. No, it's not. <laughs> we're on first we're online basis? friends. Are you? Yeah. <laughs> okay. We saw each other in person one time. You saw him in person. He, he probably saw me. I don't. <laughs> okay. Nick definitely saw me. How do you know? Because he looked at me. <laughs> Listen, you know when Nick Jonas looks at you, you know. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll let you. I'll let you think that. He did. He okay. looked at me. Cool. He may not care. But he looked at me. The Mika's no longer the host now. You're just you just <laughs> raided on my parade. No, I said you can believe that. I said that's probably it's probably true. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else? You just don't want Nick Jonas to look at me. Are you jealous of Nick Jonas? Generally, yeah. <laughs> He's got a lot more money than me. That'd be nice. All right. Done. <laughs> okay. Mika's now gone for the rest of the podcast. Peace. Go drink my wine. So follow us on social media, all that fun stuff. Twitter.com slash soundofhistory underscore. I've posted a couple times on there in the past two weeks. Yeah, you, you've posted a, a thing or two. I've tried. Not really. Not very hard, but I posted. I'm not done talking. Oh, no. 
I read your book today and it was so good. And everyone should know that you did a really good job. And one day you'll be able to read it yourselves, friends. It will be out there in the world for you to read. It was wonderful. So just wait a few years. Apparently it's a really slow process. Yeah. Um, Well, it's also not anywhere yet. So it's not like in the process of coming out. Right. But one day because it was awesome and better than at least one book. It was different than the other book. I would I would say it was definitely worlds better than one book I read and I liked it more than two books I read wow I know there's only one book that I liked more (laughs) and that's because it didn't make me cry (laughs) it's fair (laughs) it was so good I'm just impressed with you and you can see other stuff that he's written on his website which maybe is linked somehow all your stuff tends to be linked I know the pod is linked on your website yeah I don't think it's it's anywhere on the podcast. Com, right? Yeah. Yep. He's an impressive dude. Thank you. Are you really uncomfortable? Not really uncomfortable. Just don't know how to segue it. <laughs> <laughs> and here's another cool thing you wrote. <laughs> okay. It's about drugs and a little bit of music. Yeah, by and large. And rain. There's rain in here too. Oh, okay. So what do you remember about what we've been talking about? Drugs. <laughs> Not really. Not the past couple. I think a lot of people have had drug problems. Well, I yeah. think like 99% of the people that we've talked about have had drug problems. That's not like the biggest point of it. Like you could argue That's it is true. of psychedelic rock, but none of the past two that we've done. Uh, wait, we've done more than psychedelic rock? Yes. Oh. We did metal and oh, Led yeah. Zeppelin. We did do that. That's yeah. right. That's right. I forgot. Because if I think Woodstock, Woodstock, I think psychedelic rock. Yeah, that's fair. And not metal. And that's so fair. I forgot that we did metal. We probably should have put this after psychedelic rock. Like, like that's where it makes the most sense. But I just kind of thought Woodstock was a great way to just cap off the 60s. So I just put it at the end. Your timeline is weird sometimes. Yeah, but oh well. So we spent the past several episodes talking about the 60s and the new wave of rock music that started happening during that time period. It was a time of hippies and really psychedelic stuff. And then we're ending our look at the 60s with one of the most legendary moments in American music history. What do you know about Woodstock? It actually happened unlike Fire Festival. <laughs> yes. I don't know how you could do an episode on Fire Fest. Oh, there's a whole hour and a half documentary on it. You could do it. Yeah, but I don't know how you could do it. I probably wouldn't, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. But it happened. Um, I have recently learned there was rain. <laughs> really? How'd you learn there that? There was weed. There was probably acid. Oh, yeah. Um, There were hippies. A few of them. A couple, one uh-huh. or two. There was probably law breaking. No. And and there was music, but I bet that some I bet that some drama happened and it wasn't as wasn't what it was supposed to be. Or it was perfect and that's why no one has shut up about it. And that's all I know. 
And that's the story, folks. That's, and that's all, the podcast, folks. actually. She just summed up everything. There's nothing left to talk about. Da 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 da. Woodstock. <laughs> okay. The Woodstock Music and Arts Fair, which was arguably the most well known musical festival in American music history. What was the arts? I don't know, just painting probably. There are probably people there doing like painting. Visual and stuff arts? There. I don't think digital arts existed. No vi- visual. Visual, yeah. Probably. I didn't know that. I mean, oh, it's no, not a, but the rain. It's not a big part of it, but. And it might not be the most famous anymore. I think most people our age would think of Firefest before they think of Woodstock if you ask them what music festival they know. But I think. Coachella and. I just feel like Firefest is so, like, in the pop culture right now. Like, if. What's I, ours? Bonnaroo? Yes. In, like, three years, people will have. Three to five years, people won't think of Firefest anymore. But right now. It's like big. When was that supposed to happen? It was several years ago. But don't worry because that one in Vegas is going to happen. Everyone's going to talk about. When we were young. Everyone's going to talk about the sad emo music that never, that they never got to go to instead of Firefest. <laughs> okay. Anyway, Woodstock happened on a dairy farm in Bethel, New York on August 15th through 18th. Is it 18th. New York? Yeah. I pictured like major upstate. Cali vibes. No, it's like upstate New York. On August 15th through 18th, 1969. The festival... It was the summer of 69. Yeah. Is that what it's about? Probably not. Oh. Because <laughs> that's about when the singer was like young. I don't think he was at Woodstock. Bomber. The festival was organized by four incredibly inexperienced concert promoters who somehow Uh-oh. managed to assemble an all-star lineup of musicians and artists. Oh, so it is a lot like... Yeah. Okay. 32 musicians performed over the course of the festival. It left a lasting impression not only on the performers and attendees, but basically the entire youth culture. It is widely regarded as the crowning pivotal moment of the countercultural movement. Anything to add? You look like you're thinking. I don't know what counterculture is anymore. I I don't think anyone does. (laughs) Woodstock was always supposed to make a profit. It was the the brainchild of four men under the age of 27 who were looking for investment opportunities. As they do. Yep. John Roberts and Joel Rosenman. No. That would be amazing, though. No. <laughs> I don't know that I'd want to go to any festival. No, no, it's a cult. <laughs> Run away. Anyway, John and Joel were two New York City-based entrepreneurs who were working on a project called Media Sound. Literally, I hate them already. <laughs> I don't hate them, but I don't want to talk to them because I know that all that Joe and Joel and John, John are and going Joel. to talk about is like their return on investment and and their 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 car and and their on LinkedIn they have way more LinkedIn friends than I do. They're called connections. Shut up. <laughs> Eight LinkedIn. Anyway. I don't know what other douchey stuff that they would say because I try not to talk to just douchey people. Showing you their portfolio of NFTs. <laughs> yes, NFTs definitely fit into this. They would have loved NFTs. 
So they were working on a project, which they called Media Sound, which was going God. to be a major studio in New York City. It was going to be. Yes. You could always say that. <laughs> their lawyer, lawyer, I don't know why I said it like that. Their lawyer suggested they, they reach out to Artie Cornfield and Michael Lang, who were also like planning on building a studio. Artie Cornfield? Yes. That's a name. <laughs> that sounds made up. That sounds Every name's made up. That sounds like it belongs in a show on the CW about That's someone true. in the South or your Or like an animated television like an animated raunchy comedy is where I I was thinking it. Disney actually. Okay. I was thinking of like Bojack Horseman or Bob's Burgers or something like that. Okay, same vibes but for children I was thinking of um Oh man, I have to listen to that dumb show all day when I'm at work. What is it called? I'm not going to be any help here. Yo Gabba Gabba. No. <laughs> um, Coco Melon. No, stop. I do have to listen to that. Um, green. Green. Gr- green. <laughs> <laughs> I can't stop thinking about Gravity Falls. It's just, so this is just like green a falls. marijuana show. No, they're green, like green? rednecks. Green Disney. Show. Green. No. Did you just look up Green no. Disney. Yes. Stop. <laughs> except for except for I did it. I actually looked up. <laughs> I looked up. Do you want me to read it? (laughs) I can't do it. It's not even that funny. It's going to be a major letdown now. (laughs) It's not even that funny, but I'm crying. I just looked up Green Disney. (laughs) Yeah, that's not. I'm crying. Green Disney Show. Green Disney Show. Big City Greens. <laughs> I have no idea what that is, but it's, it seems like it was definitely worth this long. <laughs> it's annoying. It's what is annoying is what it is. Okay. Well, anyway, Artie Cornfield of <laughs> Big City Green fame. And Michael Lang were also wanting to build a studio, but they were planning on doing it in rural Woodstock, New York. Didney. <laughs> Woodstock was always known as a kind of like artist colony. Members of the group. What? This is super culty. <laughs> members of the, this is kind of a confusing sentence. Members of the band, but the band is the name of the band. It's a, just a musical group called the band lived there zero zero creativity i do not want to hear their music well i think unless they're ironic i i could be completely wrong about this but this is i think the band was bob dylan's backing band stop (laughs) so it was bob dylan and the band so whenever they like went their separate ways they just kept that part that's what i think it's from but i don't know that makes sense actually i vibe with that well they lived in woodstock as did bob dylan and a few other notable figures in the countercultural revolution John Bob and- Dylan is countercultural. Oh yeah, 
because he was it was very like stick it to the government anti anti government free like free love drugs all that kind of stuff and he was a big like he launched a lot of that with his kind of like folky protest type songs gotcha anyway john and write american pie no that was don mcleon or something like that oh i hate that song (laughs) john and joel were unimpressed with the studio in the woods idea and instead right they're big city boys with their with their cars and their portfolios instead they suggested a music festival there their expensive haircuts How long is this one going to be now? A long time now. <laughs> <laughs> We're 20 minutes in and not done with the first page. <laughs> so Michael had previously worked on the Miami Music Festival in 1968, which was considered a success. About <laughs> okay. 25,000 people went to it, which is a good good number. We'll soon find out. It's not whole different ballpark from Woodstock. But anyway. And Artie was the youngest vice president in Capitol Records history. Oh, he is a big shot. So although they were not overly experienced, they had some know-how in the business and a few different connections. They all agreed to the concert plan, and so they created Woodstock Ventures and got to work. Almost from the very start, there were differences in approach. Michael was a bit more laid back, while John and Joel were very type A people. They had a lot of trouble finding a place to hold the concert. Their initial plans fell through, and about a month before the show was supposed to happen, a local dairy farmer offered part of his land in Bethel, New York. They jumped at it, since it was about the only option they had, and the show was supposed to happen in a month. The group also had trouble lining up big bands to play. In April of 1969, Creedence Clearwater Revival signed the contract to play for $10,000. Dude. They were the biggest act to sign up, to that point and it helped the guys attract other more talent not other more talented but other talent and ticket purchasers so you tracking yeah two douchebags and then one guy that sounds like a country bumpkin but actually is like a business music prodigy and then some other guy um have to do this on a dairy farm and they can't find people to play except for credence clearwater revival am i Kay. right yep yep Tickets were sold in advance, but not in any convenient way. You were able to purchase tickets from some New York record stores or by mail. Originally, mail is convenient. I guess uh, back for the then, time, yeah. But still, originally the group estimated fifty thousand people might show up. They sold one hundred and eighty-six thousand tickets before Shoot. the event. That's okay. You only need to expect like what eighty percent of your guests to show up. Okay, that's still like four times the amount they planned. Maybe not that much. I can't do math. I can, but I don't want to. Fair. The late change in venue left the organizers almost no time to plan and build the needed resources. They needed fences, ticket booths, art pavilions, restrooms, really everything that you would need for a concert. Is this when someone dies? I mean, I probably. No, are you thinking about the Rolling Stones one? Maybe. At Altamont, where yeah. their Hell's Angels stabbed someone? Maybe. Yeah. That's I think not I'm thinking this. of that. And then also, like, you know, that one guy where people keep getting smothered in his shows? Like, it's happened several times. So oh, the recent keep one? Dying. Yeah. Yeah. Did people get smothered? I th- do think 
there were a couple deaths, but oh that's not what this is known for. Like Woodstock's not known for that. I think they were primarily drug-related deaths. Anyway. Can you imagine being like high and in that confusing of a circumstance? No. With that many people? Oh my God. Okay. So they have to build a whole bunch of stuff in about a month. Build toilets. By the day of the concert, they had almost none of it ready. Oh my gosh. Most, in a true event yeah. building fashion. Sure. Most notably, the fences and the ticket booths weren't ready yet, meaning the concert suddenly became a free show. By August 13th, two days before the show, 50,000 people were already camped out for it. Nice. Over the next few days, an estimated 1 million people descended on Woodstock. 1 million? Yes. From 186,000 yeah. to 1 million? Because it became a free show. Oh, my. Uh, and it's yeah. only estimated. There's no way to calculate that. That might be way overestimating it. I don't know. I wouldn't want to do that anymore, I don't think. Well, I don't. As we'll soon find out, not all of them got there. Not all of the million people that were estimated to go to Woodstock one, go to Woodstock? One million people descended on Woodstock, the city. Ah. This led to extreme traffic jams and gridlock throughout the little town roads because it's a small rural town. It's not made for a million people to be on it. That's how it is trying to leave the new concert venue in Franklin. <laughs> yes. It's one road. That's how the Nashville soccer stadium is going to be. Damn it. Anyway, many concert goers simply abandoned their cars on the highway and walked to the farm. Hell yeah. Reports of the traffic jams discouraged some people from trying to get there. Ultimately, about 500,000 people made it to the festival. Which is still insane. Keep in mind, their only experience is one guy who happened to work on the Miami festival that had 25,000 people. I already knew that these guys were all bark and no bite. Like, I expected this to crash and burn from the moment that you told me their <laughs> names were John and Joel. And they lived in New York and they were entrepreneurs. Seven they have exactly lived up to my expectations thus far. <laughs> Several thousand people broke through what few fences were built, and recent rains in the area made everything muddy and more dangerous. Woodstock Ventures was not ready for the amount of people who came. They did not have enough food or medical supplies or security or really, thing, really anything at all to facilitate an event of this size. They expected 50,000 and got 500,000. But I don't know if they would have even have been ready for 50,000, so... On August 17th, the governor of New York called John and said he was considering sending 10,000 National Guard soldiers to the festival to help keep order. I mean. But John managed to talk him out of it. The county declared a state of emergency, and oh soldiers from the local Air Force base had to help keep order and airlifted the performers in and out. Oh, my gosh. Here's just Did a they have performers pull out? I don't think so. Huh. Not any, like, notable ones. But I, here's a little video I found to show you kind of like some of the crowds and the weather that was happening. I have no idea what one million people looks like. Or it's I guess 500,000. I have no clue what that looks like because I don't know how many people are in Nissan. Like, Nissan's... Really hard. Maybe we can stop this 60,000? I think... No! 
I love this because it's like someone was just sent on stage to like distract everyone. Yeah. And they were like, let's make it stop running. Anyway. Because that's, that's something that they can do. Yeah. I think I that mean, that is so Ted funny. Mosby made it rain. Ted Mosby did make it rain. So anyway, that's just like shows a little bit of the, I'll link that on wherever Twitter put it in the show notes so you guys can see that video if you want. Link, just shows a little bit uh, of the crowd, some Twitter. of the weather conditions they were dealing with. It really wasn't raining that bad. Well, that was because they were chanting. Imagine how bad it would have been if they weren't. You're right. Would have been a tsunami. All in all, things were not going great from an organizational standpoint. Despite the bad weather and horrible facilities, the crowd was largely harmonious and controlled. People largely attribute that to the large amount of psychedelic drugs at the festival. Really, it was kind of the pinnacle of the free love and hippie movement. Over the course of the festival, there were 742 drug overdoses. Oh. But only two people died. One from insulin usage. Oh. And one was run over by a tractor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, that was way too loud, but I did not <laughs> expect that. What? That one was avoidable. <laughs> well, they yeah. were probably high. Yeah, and like probably like hiding somewhere or like passed out somewhere that the tractor driver couldn't see. Oh my lord. But to offset that, there were also two births. So, you know, new life comes in when old life it's leaves. The circle of life. Off-duty police officers were banned, so it's estimated that there were only a dozen officers keeping an eye on the concert. Why not just put them on duty? I don't know. Can pay them? I don't know. Speaking about the event, Max, who is the guy who owned the farm, talked about how 500,000 people spent the weekend thinking about music and peace on his property. That's nice. He said, quote, if we join them, we can turn those adversities that are the problems of America today into a hope for a brighter and more peaceful future. I really love that that's his stance because I was thinking of a much more capitalism yeah. approach where he'd be like, stop pooping on my lawn. I mean, I, Max seems like a cool guy, but I think anyone in his position would have the right to be a little upset. Yeah. If peop if these like four kids come to you and they're like, we can do this concert, it'd be about 50,000 people, and then half a million people show up on your property destroying things and... I'd be a little upset, but he seemed pretty cool about the whole thing. So that's just kind of like the logistics in the background. Are you ready to talk about some of the music that happened? See, I'm I'm happy. <laughs> I feel fulfilled in my Woodstock knowledge. <laughs> there were a lot of delays due to heavy weather. Around 5 p.m. on Friday, August 15th, Richie Havens took the stage for the very first set. He played for something like three hours because a lot of the people that were scheduled to play after him couldn't get through the traffic jams. Oh my gosh. At he about, lucked out. Yeah. At about 2 a.m., this person whose name, like Joan Baz, Baze, I don't know how to say it, B-A-Z, rounded out the first day and she played the last of her set in the middle of a torrential downpour. She is kind of known as like the female equivalent of Bob Dylan, so her peaceful and soulful sound was pretty good antidote to the chaos of the first day here's a little snippet of her performance before like the major rain started oh i wanted to see it when it was raining i tried to find that couldn't so it probably had horrible sound quality yeah. they say every distance 
don't know that this would get me hyped up enough after like eight hours of a chaotic festival when it's like 5 a.m. Joan. Day two started at around noon and ended at about 9 a.m. the next day. That tracks. <laughs> Santana, who wasn't really known at this point beyond Southern California, played during day two. The day ended with an almost unbelievable succession of musicians. The Grateful Dead took the stage late because the rain had flooded their stage and their sound guy wanted to check things out before they got out there. Also, their heavy equipment had smashed the turntable stage. They started at about 10.30 p.m. and finished around midnight. That's normal. Yeah. After, but, like, their second act? No, well, that would be way later, because tw- it started at noon. Okay. So this is already, like, 12 hours after the first one started. After them, Creedence Clearwater Revival took the stage and stole the show. However, they didn't get started until around midnight, which the band really didn't appreciate. They blamed the Grateful Dead's long set for their late start. I I think the Grateful Dead had a normal amount of music time. It's like an hour and a half. It's kind of long for a festival, but... I think the Grateful Dead is... I think Clearwater Revival are being little (laughs) turds. After Credence, Janis Joplin started her set. Hell yeah. And did Janis complain? Maybe. But we don't know (laughs) about it. She had recently gone solo, so her set lacked a bit of the normal power of her backing band. After Janis Joplin was Sly and the Family Stone, and they started around 3 a.m. Dude. This Woodstock show is widely considered one of their best performances. That's impressive. After them, The Who started playing. Oh my god. And they actually ended their set as the sun was coming up. Oh my gosh. Then Jefferson Airplane. Oh my gosh. Probably the biggest of the psychedelic bands at this point took the stage. They were the headliner of day two and they started their set around eight AM. Were they all on cocaine to keep them going? Probably. But they are also British, so they might have just been jet lagged. Like and it's probably like what, noon for them? Like they're fine. Here is, well, no, wait, sorry, that was, I was thinking about the Who. Jefferson Airplane is not British. So, yeah, they were probably very tired. Here is the Who's performance from that night. Since I don't think we're going to be it's listening Jesus. to any of the Who, so I figured I'd play their set. Pinball Wizard. It's the most ridiculous song. He's a wizard at pinball. It's literally what it is. Yeah. It's a kid who's really, he's a deaf, a dumb, and blind kid who's really good at pinball. Did they have to do that, though? No, but they did. Oh, I'm living for this bit. Oh, yeah. I've literally never put this together. <laughs> that, that's what's happening in this song. Oh, 
the Who. That was fun. I enjoyed that. So that was happening around like 8 a.m. That was 8 a.m. Well, no, okay. Jefferson Airplane took the stage at 8 a.m. and they played after the Who. So it was like 6, 37, somewhere around there. Dude. Day three, but still like that succession of artists is just insane. That's a lot. I kept expecting it it to be the end, like yeah. a headliner. Grateful Dead, Credence, Janis Joplin, The Who, I'm still upset. Credence can't be over here complaining that they have to start <laughs> midnight when there are other performers who are literally playing at like 5 a.m. Yeah. Yep. 3 a.m. 8 a.m. for the actual headliner of yeah, the day. Yeah, but they could have slept. Yeah. Like. But they're, like the crowd hasn't. So <laughs> anyway. Insane. Day three started around 2 p.m. with the legendary performance of Joe Cocker. He was barely known before this, but after his performance, he became famous because it was that good. Good Shortly after his performance, a heavy storm washed over the area and shut everything down for a few hours. I feel like I got to play a little bit of Joe Cocker. So here's a bit of his performance from that night or morning. Whatever this was. uh, With uh, the usual thing. The only thing I can say... As I've said to many uh, people, this, guy. Uh, this title uh, just about What's Joe Cocker? Uh, puts it all into focus. It's called With a Little Help from My Friends. Remember it. That's Joe Cocker. A very traditional bluesy voice. I'm whelmed. <laughs> Jimi Hendrix was the last to perform at Woodstock. Due to weather delays, he didn't end up taking the stage until about 9 a.m. on Monday morning. Wow. By that time, the crowd had thinned to about 25,000 people. And here is one of his songs from that set. Mm-hmm. 
for the power point. Jimmy. I feel like we're not going to talk about him much, so got to at least get one Jimmy song in here. Ah, he's just we're done with his like style of music, and we didn't talk about him. So, although Woodstock is largely remembered for having one of the best lineups of any festival, many artists declined to participate, including Bob Dylan, The Beatles, The Rolling Stones, Simon and Garfunkel, The Doors, and many others. So, if like any of them had come, it could have even been more legendary than it turned out to be. Turns out leaving the festival was almost as hard as getting there. Roads were still packed with cars. Cleaning up the venue site required days and days of work and thousands and thousands of dollars. Woodstock left the four founders basically bankrupt. Dang. In 1970, the film of Woodstock, which is what we've been watching clips from, released and cemented the legendary status of the event. The film was released by Warner Brothers and actually helped save Warner Brothers at a time when they were in danger of going out of business. That's how successful that movie was. In the years after Woodstock, as the creators pumped out books, soundtracks, and films about it, and as the Summer of Love movement ended, the legend of Woodstock only grew. They tried to do a revival concert in 1970, but Max, the farm owner, refused to rent out his farm again. Wow, I wonder why. He said, quote, as far as I know, I'm going back to running a dairy farm. <laughs> He's so <laughs> chill. I can't. Yeah. I love you and your boundaries, dude. Well, he passed away in 1973. Oh, I hope he died doing what he loved. Yeah, dairy farming. Dairy farm. <laughs> so he's just it's like this old man. Like that was four years after Woodstock. So he was already pretty old mm-hmm. probably by the time this was happening. Dang. It's just a nice change of pace to get, like, an old man with a chill perspective towards today's music. Yeah. <laughs> we don't get that a lot in That's this That's pretty podcast. different. About 80 lawsuits were filed against Woodstock Ventures. Cool. Primarily by local farmers, not named Max. Why? The wild success of the movie helped the promoter- promoters pay off $1.4 million in debt and settle the lawsuits. They probably were just, like, destruction of property lawsuits or, like, noise. I don't okay. know what, but... That's a lot of people coming into your little rural neighborhood. Things are going to get broken. Yeah. There have been several anniversary shows and other things bearing the Woodstock name, but nothing quite like Woodstock 1969 has ever happened again. Well, I'd hope not. (laughs) As for the promoters, Michael Lang stayed affiliated with Woodstock. He helped produce the Woodstock 94 and 99 shows. All right. He attempted to have a Woodstock 50th anniversary show in 2019, but it had to be canceled due to venue issues. Well, that seems um, yeah, applicable. It tracks. Although he wasn't an official producer, he helped the Rolling Stones plan and execute the Altamont concert, which was promoted as Woodstock West in 1969. Hmm. This show ended disastrously when one of the Hells Angels, who were hired as security, stabbed a concert goer to death. Y- yeah. Mm-hmm. 
it's largely seen as the end of the summer of love. Shortly after Woodstock, Michael began to manage Joe Cocker, which lasted for over 20 years. Good for him. He also started a record label in the 70s and put out diverse music. Nice. Recently, he owns the Michael Lang Organization, which does live events, artist management, and film production. This organization has worked with Prince, Snoop Dogg, Outkast, Avril Lavigne, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Kid Rock, Alicia Keys, and many others. That is a good uh, list right there. He was also played by Jonathan Groff in a 2009 film about Woodstock. I love Jonathan Groff. <laughs> so all in all, I would say Michael's done pretty well for himself. I think since that's Woodstock. great. Speaking about Woodstock recently, he said, quote, In 1969, the bands at Woodstock were all a part of the counterculture. They were very much involved in our lives. It wasn't just entertainment. It was more about the social issues. They were part of our generation. Woodstock offered an environment for people to express their better selves, if you will. Give them that, and it seems to work. It was probably the most peaceful event of its kind in history. That was because of expectations and what people wanted to create there. Yeah, honestly, I mean... Yeah. I can't yeah, think of any of other time where, like, that many people have gathered completely peacefully and, like, doesn't seem like there was a lot of fights or, like, stealing yeah. or anything like that. And and they were absolutely under stress, so... Yeah. Definitely says a lot about the type of person that was there. Artie Cornfield went on to release some of his own music. He spent the past 40 or so years speaking to school, speaking to schools and events about the true meaning behind Woodstock. What? Why? He was very much the hippie of the Woodstock promoter, like, producer crew. Like, okay. he was their little, like, artsy guy. He also has his own show where he talks about these things. He was kind of, oh, here we go. He was kind of seen as the embodiment of the Woodstock ideal, and he is known as the father of Woodstock. Interesting. He was the one with the music connections that eventually got the bands involved. He also played a large part in getting the documentary made. So that's kind of all him. he's doing. He seems to be enjoying his life. He's a little businessman. But, like, of the arts. <laughs> Joel wrote a book with his partner, John, about oh their adventures in creating Woodstock. I have never heard a more <laughs> New York entrepreneur okay, to do. Get, get ready for this. Oh, no. The name of the book is called Young Men with Unlimited Capital. <sighs> <laughs> they didn't have that. <laughs> no, and they did it not. showed. They went broke. Oh, my God. He's still listed as a manager of Woodstock Ventures, LLC, which produced the revival shows. But I can't really find anything else about him post-Woodstock. Like wow, he, he just, didn't do anything? He's probably just in like behind-the-scenes type stuff. I was being sarcastic. In 2014, he spoke about Woodstock and said, quote, we put, a, we put together an event that was a magnet for a generation. He also called it a cute idea that got out of hand, which I think is... A very apt description. <laughs> like Cute. Was, Interesting. It was a fun idea, and then it just exploded. Along with writing the book with Joel in 1999, John Roberts worked at a leverage buyout firm in Manhattan. He and Joel produced a few other events, but I can't really figure out what those events were. It was just listed. <laughs> he passed away from cancer in 2001. Oh. So that's the story of Woodstock. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty pretty crazy thing to learn about i watched like the whole woodstock movie in my concert and promotions class in school oh. and it was very interesting all right any final thoughts on woodstock i'm looking up fringe outfits <laughs> to buy 
did you enjoy learning about the actual music venue? I or venue. Yeah, I was gonna say it was not a venue, and well, I did. It was. All right, I think Max is the real hero of this story, along with the bands who just like rolled with it and played at seven a.m. when uh-huh. they were probably exhausted. Everyone that wasn't Credence Clearwater Revival is on my good list. <laughs> okay, good to know. They are on my bad list. Because well, it's not cool to complain. Yeah. I mean, I, get, I could also understand if you're booked to play at a certain time and then it's five hours later. It's just the fact that no one else was complaining that... Rain delays are rain delays. Yeah. Still. It's, I feel like when it's as produced as poorly as it was, it's okay to complain that things aren't quite good. Like with the stage falling apart because Grateful yeah. Dead's equipment is too heavy. Like it... There's legitimate complaints in there. Anyway, I'm salty still. That's Woodstock. That ends our look at the 60s. Ooh, so next mama, episode. Welcome to the 60s. Next episode, we don't have to hear that Whoa, anymore. Oh, 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 oh. And we're going to go into the 70s. Oh, mama, go, go, go. I think the first thing we talk about is arena rock, which scares me because that means i got to get writing because I only have two more written. After this one, so I gotta get ahead. Is Arena Rock just like John Mayer playing Bridgestone? Sort of. Precursor to that. <laughs> it's like songs written specifically to be played in that kind of venue. Like We Are the Champions. Ah. Uh, I'm down for that. Yeah, are we talking about fun. Queen? Yep. Yes. We talk about Arena Rock and then we have a whole episode on Queen. Yeah. We also talk a little bit about Boston in that one which is fun to talk about because I, I think I'll go Boston yes that I think I'll start a new life I think I'll All right. start <laughs> over no one knows my name yeah I think I'll go to Boston okay <laughs> I think Okay, well, I feel like at the end of this, I just want to throw in a disclaimer. Sorry that the sound quality is probably rough. Our cat was jumping all over the table and moving things and just being generally chaotic. So, sorry about that. (laughs) I'm back, bitches. (laughs) And Mika's drunk or something. I don't know. I'm not. (laughs) Sorry. I just haven't done anything all day. had a lot of emotion, a lot of... Mm-hmm. So I, I normally figure out in editing just how bad the quality is and how much you can like hear the table and the mic stands, but I feel like I can already tell it's going to be pretty bad in this one, so I I'm sorry better, about that. I was better, though. You were. Ajax was not. Ajax. Anytime he jumps on the table and walks around, it like shakes the table and you can hear the stands move, so he did that a lot. <laughs> anyway, sorry about that. Maybe we should not let him on the table, but he looks so cute in his podcast. So sorry about that. It will happen again. All right. Thanks for. Bye.